It's Monday, May the 10th, 2021. More than 1.2 billion vaccines for COVID-19 have been administered worldwide. This is The Jab from Economist Radio. I'm Alok Jha, The Economist science correspondent. And I'm Natasha Loder, the health policy editor. In this podcast, we're reporting from the sharp end of the vaccination race. We're following the vaccine story as it happens. Today, we'll look at how the world can make more vaccines. Should drug companies be forced to suspend their patents? What else could the world do to boost supplies? Hello, Natasha. How are you today? I'm good. I'm good. Um, This week, I have been looking at African vaccine manufacturing and I have been getting into the weeds on intellectual property around COVID-19 vaccines. Both very useful topics for what we're about to discuss. Uh, Joining us this week is Ed Carr, Deputy Editor at The Economist. Ed, it's great to have you back. Nice to be here, Alok. Ed, always the hardest question to you. Why is the debate around IP so divisive? I suppose because IP is the fundamental underpinning of the entire business model of the pharma industry. They do research, they own the intellectual property, they make money. But at the same time, does that restrict supply? And I would add, actually, that because we're in a pandemic, the sort of question is whether the normal rules around IP should be withheld. Well, exactly. And that's exactly what we're going to debate from all angles today. On May the 6th, the Biden administration declared its support for a temporary lift on patents for COVID-19 vaccines. India and South Africa had proposed the waiver at the World Trade Organization in October 2020. Back then, America opposed it. The country's policy shift was a surprise to many. It comes amid catastrophic outbreaks of the virus in poorer countries. The next stop is for the World Trade Organization to hammer out a deal. But with lengthy negotiations, the process could take months. By giving drug companies exclusive rights over their newest inventions, patents are meant to help cover the enormous costs of developing new drugs. But should that be the priority during a health emergency? And would waiving patents boost vaccine supplies? Natasha, you've been speaking to someone who thinks that suspending patents for COVID-19 vaccines is going to help. Tell us more. Yes, I have. Um, This is an argument that's been making the rounds lately. Lots of NGOs, Oxfam, Médecins Sans Frontières, all are arguing that IP needs to be waived. JIT Ghosh is a professor of economics at the University of Massachusetts in Amherst. She's written a lot about this. I wanted to hear what she had to say. We've had the most obscene kind of vaccine nationalism evident in the rich countries, whereby not only have they grabbed all the vaccines, about 85% of the vaccines available for global supply this year, but they have prevented additional supply because of holding on to knowledge and intellectual property rights. So what's the case for waiving IP rights on vaccines? You know, intellectual property rights were never really intended to be used in emergency situations. 
Even the TRIPS agreement of the WTO says that you have to allow for special exceptional circumstances. And in emergencies, patents have been waived in the past, in World War II for penicillin, in other countries for other major emergencies. They're not meant to be used in a situation where you urgently need to expand production or something. Isn't it the case, though, that if a waiver was granted, that there's still quite a long road to making vaccines? So if we had a waiver, say, today, then it could take, what, maybe a year to start producing vaccines? Not really, no. If you had a waiver today and you had a push for the transfer of technology, because you also need that, you need the companies to share their knowledge, you could get some vaccines produced in as little as three months in many different producers across the world who are willing to do it. Not the mRNA vaccines, which are more complex, but several of the others. A technology transfer, and by that I guess you mean the knowledge, the know-how, the cell lines and things like that, that doesn't come with an IP waiver. That has to be something that the companies have to want to give. Isn't that the case? Yes, but companies can be made to want it by the governments that have subsidized this vaccine development. The U.S. government gave $12 billion to six companies. European Union has given lots of money to different vaccine companies. They can lean on them and say, share your technology. Absolutely. But then you could lean on them to say, share the technology now, and they're not doing that. And so it seems to me that it's the know-how really that's the barrier and the willingness of companies to transfer that technology that's the problem, not the IP. Because if a company were going to transfer their technology, then by definition, the IP wouldn't be an issue. Well, yes, this is this is chicken and egg, but you need both, really. You need the ability of other producers to make it without facing legal cases, and you need the knowledge with which to make it. You need both. Shouldn't, say, America just lean on, say, J&J, Pfizer and Moderna to do tech transfer, and then we wouldn't have to go through the WTO at all. Certainly, just like the UK government should lean on AstraZeneca, which was anyway a vaccine produced by public money in a public university. But you see, this is where I find it really, really interesting, because it seems to me that Astra's done a really good job at sharing its technology, and it's transferred it to over nine places in the world. And it's never been an issue of IP. It's to do with how much capacity they have to transfer all this technology. And I don't understand why Astra and Oxford University has come in for this criticism when they seem very willing to share all of this stuff. They actually don't seem willing to share. They're not willing. The original plan was for Oxford University to make its knowledge publicly available, just put everything up on the website. And that plan was changed midway in mid-2020 by the Gates Foundation, encouraging them to go into a single solitary deal with AstraZeneca, handing over the intellectual property of something that was created in a public place with public funding. And it has been licensed to a small number of producers. There are many other producers who are willing to make it, who are not being given this technology, including companies in India, Australia, Canada, Israel, Chile. I could go on and on. So, It's not the case that it's widely shared. It is shared according to what they have decided. Jayati Ghosh there making quite a clear case that IP rights should be waived. And it seems as though the Biden administration is listening. Um, Ed, would you just take us through what has happened with the Biden administration and the WTA? What has actually been said and agreed? 
Well, last week, in what was a real surprise, actually, the Biden administration said that they were prepared to enter discussions about waiving IP for the vaccines for COVID-19. And since the United States has always been a real champion of intellectual property, in fact, they were the ones who really pressed for it to be part of the global trade regime under the WTO, that was a big reversal of position. Natasha, why do you think the Biden administration made this decision? There are two ways of looking at it. One is that it's an impossible moral position to argue against the basic point, which is that the waiver that is found within this TRIPS agreement at the WTO is to allow for patent flexibility during a health crisis. And Catherine Tai on the US side was saying, basically, extraordinary times call for extraordinary measures. The other way of looking at this is a sort of perhaps America took a more pragmatic decision and that it knows that its support of a waiver is necessary but not sufficient. If it had just came out and said no, flatly no, it would have been seen as obstructionist, nationalistic. It would have given a really poor impression of America. But by supporting it, they're at least allowing this to go ahead through the WTO but it's going to face some headwinds, not least from Germany, of course, which is not in favour of it, has a couple of mRNA biotech firms in its own country. So perhaps by supporting it, one cynically might say that what actually emerges may be watered down, is going to come much further down the line, may not even arrive at all. That's interesting. So Germany is one of those that is opposing it. I wonder what kind of political fight this is going to end up being. Ed, what happens next? Well, a long series of negotiations. But what bothers me about this is that it looks as if, ah, yes, now, you know, we've begun to solve this problem, but we haven't begun to solve it. There's just so many other things you need to do if you're going to get supplies of vaccines to increase massively. I'm not sure this is going to have a positive effect at all. It might even have a negative effect. You could imagine if everyone piles in and crowds a supply chain of orders for all the ingredients you need for vaccines, that it just confuses things. To me, it's bad public policy to have a big change when you're not certain what the outcome is. It feels to me as if this makes everyone feel good about themselves, but doesn't necessarily solve the really, really big problem, which is the supply of vaccines. We will come back to talking about supply chains later on in the programme. But Natasha, you gave Jayati in your interview there a little bit of a hard time. Did you think the IP rights should be removed or do you think that that's the wrong thing to focus on? It isn't just about waiving IP. It's about the know-how and what is called tech transfer in the business. And so with many parts of the pharma industry, you can reduce the knowledge of how to make a medicine down to a formula, which you can just hand over. That's not true for vaccines. Vaccines are really complicated to make. And you need quite a lot of institutional know-how, people who know how to make these things. There's often other bits of information like tacit knowledge that they know. And then also you may need to transfer something physical, like a sort of vaccine seed stock. And that tech transfer takes time. And it isn't something that is going to be granted through an IP waiver at the WTO. So the question is, how is that tech transfer going to happen? And one of the things we do know is that firms have been quite stretched in their ability to transfer technology because of the capacity they have and the staff they have. So I think there's a little bit of magical thinking in this, 
All that said, a year down the line, things may look a little bit different. Ed, can I ask you about what else is being done to speed up supply of vaccines? I mean, we've talked about the WTO mechanism, which is very slow now, but where else are people discussing ways to speed up the amounts of vaccines we can have? Well, if there's one good thing that might come out of it, perhaps it will stimulate a conversation about exactly this question, which is a kind of global warp speed. You know, what I care about is how many needles get into arms around the world. And I think a lot of investment in all of the bottlenecks, studying the supply chains, finding ways of getting more effective dosages. This is what needs, to my mind, needs to work. Really practical stuff about increasing the actual supply. And this is what really worries me about this, is that we now go down a rabbit hole of negotiations at the WTO that just eats up time. Natasha, where else can you see a forum for increasing supply vaccines? G7 countries do seem to be waking up to the fact that they need to take more action. And it does look like they are looking at the meeting in June and hoping to make some big announcements. I think that's a little bit further down the line than I would like. But, you know, all the big countries like the US, the UK, EU, Canada, the countries that are going to have surpluses, they need to say what their intentions are. They also need to start making the case with their own populations for vaccine donations. And this is going to take leadership. And it isn't okay for all these leaders to say, well, people just want their own vaccines first. They're not going to be happy to see any vaccine at all going abroad. They need to make the case for it. So I want to hear them say before the G7 meeting what they're going to donate and when. Okay. Thank you both very much. To read The Economist's coverage of the pandemic and much more, take out a subscription. You'll find the best offer at economist.com slash thejabpod. The story that I liked recently was in our sister magazine, 1843. Anne Rowe, who is The Economist's obituaries editor, wrote about how we're all looking forward to getting back to normal. And she looks at the word normal in a very interesting way. Normal, she says, is something that is meant to be dull and boring. So how long before... Getting back to normal just means that we're all bored again. To read that, subscribe to The Economist. Go to economist.com slash thejabpod to find the best subscription offer. It's in the notes for this episode. Let's not forget what the world has accomplished over the past year. Well over a billion doses of vaccine made at breakneck speed. But it's not enough. To change that, there'll be no quick fixes. My name is Richard Hatchett. I'm the Chief Executive Officer of the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovations, or or CEPI. CEPI develops vaccines and helps supplies reach those who need them most. I think intellectual property is one aspect of the barriers that are perhaps inhibiting vaccine production. But I think there are pathways to creating that global capacity that don't require the waiver of intellectual property rights. And so I don't think it's a panacea. It is a highly charged proposal. And I think it could actually introduce disincentives to the kinds of collaboration that are needed in order to successfully transfer technology. So it is not something that I favor. Even if intellectual property were the central barrier to vaccine production. 
waiving the intellectual property rights would not increase vaccine production tomorrow. It wouldn't increase vaccine production in three months. That would potentially increase vaccine production over a span potentially of minimum of six months to a year. And I, and I think that's highly optimistic and more realistically increasing vaccine production over longer term time periods. There are some immediate things that we can do to optimize vaccine production in the next three months, next nine months. And that's where I think we should be focusing. Okay, so if we want to increase vaccine production immediately in the next few months to really start to ramp up the numbers of vaccines available to especially low middle income countries, what are the two or three things we could do straight away? The immediate issue is to address the supply chain barriers. We know there are stress on the provision of of critical consumables. These are things like the plastic bags, the tubing, the raw materials that are necessary to create production. And, And we're actually aware that vaccine production in a number of locations has been idled because of lack of access to those components and those raw materials. So, so there is unused capacity out there in terms of manufacturing? There is certainly unoptimized capacity. There is vaccine production that could be taking place that is not taking place because of lack of access to these critical inputs. And so I think to fix that, we need more visibility across the supply chain. We need to promote trade facilitation. We need to, to the extent possible, if we could remove tariffs, customs facilitation, moving things across international boundaries, and basically optimizing the efficiency of the system. Because what we have currently are companies that are encountering these shortages and encountering lengthening delivery times, and they are pursuing compensatory behaviors like ordering more and stockpiling materials they're going to need. But that's leading to misallocations across the entire system that are reducing the efficiency of the vaccine production system globally. Can I ask you about America's position right now? So given that America has enforced the Defense Production Act and potentially caused some of these supply chain issues, just talk me through what problems that's caused and how we solve them. Well, some of the critical inputs are produced in America and the Defense Production Act is to support American industrial production in times of national crisis, such as the pandemic. And it has been invoked to ensure that the manufacturers who are providing supply to the United States have all the materials they need to produce that supply. We have communicated our concerns, including listing specific componentry and part numbers and things that we know are causing problems with production facilities outside of the United States to the U.S. And we have even discussed ways, and I think this is important, the Defense Production Act could be used in a way to support global production as well. And so we are working with them and exploring with them ways that that mechanism could be used to increase global production, not not just production for the United States. They've, they've been quite receptive to the conversations. I don't want to paint them as villains uh, by any means. What is the response you get from the American government uh, when talking about the Defense Production Act and increasing global supply of raw materials? I mean, we hear that the Biden administration might be willing to enter into something more of a global agreement now that America's doing very well with vaccinations and has plenty of supply for itself. What, what are your conversations with them like? They have been receptive to it. I mean, I think one of the things that's very difficult about these supply chain issues is that the unintended consequences of interventions in the supply chain are 
not clear to anybody when you make those interventions. And so being able to come from an international perspective and say, not just, oh, I have generalized concerns about the Defense Production Act, but let me tell you specifically how the implementation of the Defense Production Act is compromising vaccine production, you know, in facilities around the world. And and Serum Institute of India has actually come out and, and pointed out that they've had some challenges with production because of lack of access to materials that are being rated through the Defense Production Act. They appreciate that. I mean, I mean, that helps them understand the problem. It also helps them understand the need for greater transparency across the supply chain and greater coordination between the U.S. government-led efforts and international efforts to try to address these problems. Ed, can I start with you? What are the downsides of waiving IP? If the goal is to save as many lives as possible, what are the downsides? I see a couple of potential problems. Both came up, actually, in that interview. And and one of them is that lots of new actors come in who want to make vaccines, and everybody is worried about securing supplies of key ingredients. And so there's a scramble for them, and they're stockpiling of them. Uh, And stockpiling is an inefficient use of a very limited resource. And so you can end up with actually the world producing um, less vaccine than it otherwise would have done. I think the other one is the risk of mistakes. You know, it's striking. Both the AstraZeneca vaccine and the Johnson Johnson vaccine are made in a single plant in Baltimore, uh, run by a company called Emergent. And there was cross-contamination between these two different vaccine lines, ruining who knows how many doses. So I think there's a risk of mistakes that, again, reduces supply and undermines confidence. And the hope is that neither of those things happen, but I think it's a danger. I just say, though, that if you're a country that can make vaccine but can't get it, you might not care that you're going to make a really small number of doses in a really inefficient way because for you, it's about security of supply. Yeah, and that's good for you, bad for the planet, as it were. Exactly. The problems you raise are pertinent ones and I think worth raising. But there is a longer term question that I wonder about, which is that many countries in Africa, for example, on current plans, don't expect to have enough vaccine to vaccinate even a half or even a third of their populations until 2023. So there is this concept of thinking, well, why can't they produce their own vaccines more locally? And to do that, waiving IP, making sure there's no legal arguments against them doing that in a year's time when lots more manufacturing can be set up and taking into account these supply chain issues. Natasha? Yeah, that's the question, isn't it? A year from now, is this IP waiver, should it happen? Is it going to help stimulate production in the sorts of places that are lacking in it, particularly in Africa? It's an experiment that we'll have to play out to see. I guess what is encouraging for me is that if there is an IP waiver, it may make governments more willing to make the investment in vaccine making in their own countries. You know, they're great technology jobs in Africa, and then you can contribute to your health security in the long term. It is worth realising, though, that governments are going to need to make long-term commitments to buy these vaccines in their own countries or from their own regions, 10 to 15 years at minimum. And they're going to have to pay more for these vaccines because guess what? The Serum Institute in India has been making vaccines at low cost for so long, uh, they do rock-bottom prices. And so there is a price that comes with starting up your own vaccine-making plant what you get is health security, but they're not the sorts of things you can just dip into and dip out of. They're a long-term commitment. 
Ed, if waiving IP rights does encourage more vaccine production, let's say in the African continent, that's surely a good thing. Well, I think the question is whether that's the best and most efficient way of accomplishing that goal. I mean, think of a drug that costs a lot of money because you know there's a monopoly of supply and costs go right up. That's one thing to say; it's just too expensive, so we're going to make it. Home. But these drugs, you know, a shot from AstraZeneca costs what five dollars. It isn't as if there's masses of cost to come out. The problem is just volume, and there are more efficient ways of increasing volume than getting lots and lots of small producers to have to acquire the know-how. I think. But what you're asking is for a lot of countries that have capacity to make vaccines to trust, you know, just sit back and trust us, you know, don't worry, the vaccines will come. And I can understand countries saying, no, we don't want that. We want to have control of our own vaccine making in our own country. What if two years from now, COVID-19 is still hurtling around the world with lots of variants and countries are saying, we still can't get the supply we need at the price we need. And we could have started vaccine production at home a year ago, but you wouldn't let us. I think we have to take this argument really seriously, even though IP is necessary but not sufficient. Well, why why just stand in the way of that and say, well, we won't let you do it because there are other problems? Okay, let's let the IP be loosened up in some way and then see what happens. I'd say to that, that autarky, the idea that you have to produce your own stuff because you can't trust the trading system is an exceedingly bad way of producing a large amount of something. You know, the the more balkanized the manufacturer of vaccines is, the less the global output of vaccine will be. It's the kind of oldest rule of trade. As Richard Hatchett said, the way to get the maximum output of vaccine is for trade to work really well. And for trade to work really well, you don't want countries feeling they have to make their own supply. You want voluntary agreements, you want economies of scale, you want predictable supply chains. When President Joe Biden threw his weight behind waiving patents for COVID-19 vaccines, it sent shockwaves through the pharmaceutical industry. Research-based pharmaceutical companies say such a move could disrupt a fragile supply chain and that rich countries should instead share more with the developing world. Pharma, an American trade group, said the change in policy will not save lives. Fights over IP during health crises are nothing new. The pandemic has brought to the fore some long-standing questions about how governments should engage with drug firms. If you talk to pharmaceutical companies about their business, they're pretty adamant that intellectual property protections are the things that allow them to function. Ryan Avent writes the free exchange column for The Economist. And it's the key to making sure that they can economically invest in the development of of drugs and and other treatments, including some that have been crucial to dealing with the COVID crisis. And if you're a drug company, you're saying we spent years developing the ability to develop these vaccines quickly, to invest in that know-how. We had to spend a lot of money on research and human capital and on trials. And then if you suddenly strip our protections from that and allow anyone to make these vaccines and other therapies, then that basically tells us not to take those risks in the future. And this is a very standard way of working, isn't it, for pharmaceutical companies? Absolutely. This is the way the business works, uh, for better or for worse. 
Um, and it, it has been something that, you know, on occasion has caused trouble. You know, when there's a humanitarian crisis, the HIV AIDS example is one case where there seemed to be a strong public health case for not worrying quite so much about the profitability of the pharma firms. And there was quite a, an intense battle between governments and pharmaceutical companies for a long time. But at the same time, this is the way the business is structured. And it does seem that if we sort of willy-nilly scrapped intellectual property protections, we would lose a lot of the work that these companies done, which does end up doing some good for public health. Governments around the world, America, Britain especially, threw a lot of money at pharmaceutical companies to develop these vaccines and trial them. But were there things that they could have done better to make sure that more vaccines were produced? Well, this, I think, in hindsight, is the huge omission. When we think about the vaccine response last year, it was a very good thing that governments threw so much money at these companies. You know, it clearly was effective in getting companies to develop these vaccines and other treatments and to scale up production of them. But they really could have and should have included more language in contracts, which would have overcome some of these problems at the outset. It's a little bit hard to know what's what's in some of these contracts. If you look at the American case specifically, a lot of the contracts signed with pharmaceutical companies have not been disclosed fully to the public. But it does appear that there really wasn't much asked of the companies other than that they get on this and that they not export vaccines that have been produced without government permission. What governments could have done is say, because we're giving you all this money and you're not facing risk, you need to share the IP. They could have set out ways in which other countries might have provided some compensation. It wouldn't have to be a giveaway, but they could have incorporated that in there. And then we wouldn't necessarily be having to have this debate. Now, most of the world's sort of established vaccine producing capability is in use now, making COVID vaccines. And it doesn't appear to be the case that, you know, at least in terms of 2021, we would have massively more vaccine if IP rules had been suspended or if the intellectual property had been freely shared. But it would have made some difference. And I think, you know, in the, in the context of a major global pandemic, some difference is enough to justify relaxing the rules a bit or wishing that we had taken a different approach in terms of the contracts last year. The pharmaceutical companies, it's fair to say, have done quite an incredible job of developing vaccines so quickly and producing them and getting them out there. So, I mean, is it a bit unfair to be having this debate at a time when we could say that they've done quite an amazing job. I think that there was sort of a heroic effort made by researchers at some of these companies. There was definitely a sense of urgency with which they scaled up production of the vaccines. We should be grateful for that. But I also don't think there's any inconsistency with saying, thanks, guys, we are really, really glad that you did all that. But also, given the nature of the crisis the world is facing, given the thousands of lives that are being lost every day, you have a, a moral obligation to set aside concerns that sharing some of this technology might lead to more competition down the road, and instead to do everything you can to help new production get online. Ed, can I ask you to reflect on Ryan's point there about how the contracts with pharmaceutical companies were negotiated? Could they have been done differently so that we wouldn't have had to have this debate now? I'm sure that you can always negotiate contracts better when you look back with hindsight. It's a hard thing to know at the time. But I, I think that regardless of how the contracts have been negotiated, the fundamental issue that's driving this, which is the allocation of vaccines to rich countries, even as the caseload of COVID-19 rises really fast in unvaccinated and poorer countries, that fundamental problem would remain the same. The fundamental problem the world has is there isn't a big enough supply of vaccines. And as you said, Alok, the volume of vaccines that are being produced today is an astonishing achievement 
in of itself. And it would be great if it would be better. And I guess my whole sort of shtick is that I don't think relaxing IP is the way to make it better. In fact, I think it could even make it worse. And just say one other thing, which is intellectual property is a kind of license granted by society under certain conditions. And there are conditions when that license can be changed. In times of war, you can requisition physical property. In pandemics, you can requisition intellectual property. That principle seems to me entirely reasonable. My worry is what this particular act accomplishes. And I think it does not really increase supply and could even reduce it. That's my problem. It's a, it's a sort of pragmatic problem, not a problem of principle. Are we just going to have this debate about IP and pharmaceutical companies every single time there's a health emergency, given that this is how the pharmaceutical industry is structured, as Ryan said, is this always just going to come back up like a zombie? Or are there other ways of apportioning intellectual property? Are there other models that might be out there that work that I don't know about? In the next pandemic that happens, we will have a facility called COVAX, which is uh, a global initiative to buy um, and share doses of vaccines that could step in earlier and buy access to these medicines, whatever medicines are needed, sooner and be further up the line and also could be more ambitious. So we do have the tools for distributing medicines more equitably. It's never going to be the answer to just say we do want these medicines made absolutely everywhere in absolutely every country. And I, I do support Ed's broader point about it making much more sense for people to trade between each other and have these goods. But you do face that problem, don't you, in a health emergency is that countries don't want to trade. And that's where we come back to the EU because the EU has continued to trade even through some quite politically dicey situations. So if we want to set ourselves up for the future, you need to be doing this pharma manufacture, these vaccine manufacturing in countries that are either very small and can meet their capacity and needs for these drugs in the future quite quickly and then export, or in places that have a kind of rock solid commitment to exporting all around the world. Ed? Yeah, I, I think Natasha's absolutely right about that. I mean, if you are, as say the UK is, a believer in a globalised world of open markets, then it's important, it's vital actually, that you show that globalisation works. And for globalisation to work, vaccine must be available to other countries. You can't have it both ways if you're Britain. We're not exporting any, we're not giving any away. But at the same time, you can't take our intellectual property rights. It seems to me that the two things go together. If you believe in an open trading system, the United States and Britain have to make their regimes work for the world as a whole. So the global system works if everyone plays by the same rules, which hasn't happened recently. If there's ever a time for an economist to come up with a better way for all of this to work, now is the time. If anyone has any ideas. Please put your answer on a postcard. <laughs> That's right. Send it in. Send it in. Let me put this question to both of you. Um, the question of the episode is, how can the world make more vaccines? Ed, what's your quick answer to this, having heard everything you've heard today? My answer is, dig deep into the supply chains and get the money. And Natasha? I wanted to say that. But what I was going to say was, so, you know, the Defence Production Act is a sort of command and control mechanism for sort of organising a vaccine supply chain in America. If we could make it global, if America could work with the EU and other countries to have oversight of these supply chains and actually support them, we could do a lot better. 
Okay, so I think what I've learned in all of this is that IP right now is a bit of a red herring and that the hard work of understanding where the holdups are in the current vaccine supply chain seems to be the way to do things. But I still maintain that waiving IP rights seems to be a good idea for 12 months, 18 months time to encourage other places to start making vaccines too. Um, now, before we go, can I ask you both for the story you've noticed that perhaps others haven't this week? Ed? Well, I'd like to pass on a bit of good news <laughs> for a change, which was, a, it's a little story actually that came out, out of a care home in the UK, which had 15 cases of the B1617.2 variant. That's the variant that was identified in India and has is, is kind of got people very worried. And in this care home, shortly after a second dose of the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine, so too soon for it to have full effectiveness, but some protection. And the good news was that there may have been 15 cases, but there were no deaths. And if you look at the modelling, well, you know, what's the chances if there was no vaccination in this care home and you had 15 cases, how many people would you expect to die? The chances of zero people dying are less than one in 800. So what that tells you is, the AstraZeneca vaccine offers pretty good protection for serious cases and death against even this nasty Indian variant. That is a good news story. So, you know, I'm sure we'll discuss in coming episodes about how the vaccines are being changed for the various variants and things. But it, it is good news that they seem to be offering some protection. Uh, Natasha, what's your news story for this week? Well, do you want a worthy story or do you want a silly story? The latter. <laughs> <laughs> Never <laughs> offer me that choice. Always the latter. So the, the buzz uh, this week is that bees in Holland have been trained to detect COVID nineteen infections. No, and they haven't. This is they nonsense. have. <laughs> go on, go on. Uh, go on. How do they've they do been it? trained to identify samples infected with COVID nineteen, and the report says a finding they said could cut test results to just seconds. And um, the idea that we're all going to walk into a room and be surrounded by bees and have them tell us whether we have COVID or not is, is really quite funny. Well, I suppose they, they sniff out the bee variants. Ha-ha. The bee variants. <laughs> very oh, good. God, that's terrible. I, I'm still stuck on how would you operationalise the bee detector? What would you do? Just walk into a room for the bees? It. That's an interesting question. Yeah, exactly. I, I don't know. Uh, Natasha, Ed, thank you both very much indeed. Thanks, Alok. Thank you. That's all from us. The show's producer is Hannah Mourinho. The sound designer is Nico Rofast. And the editor is John Shields. If you like the podcast, please do spread the word and leave us a rating and a review. If you want to get in touch, you can email us at radio at In the meantime, thanks very much for listening. We'll have more on the jab next week when we'll dig deep into the numbers to try and understand the real toll of the COVID-19 pandemic.